And I also want to wish you all a good morning. I'm Diana Clark, and I don't know, Tony, did you want to say something at the beginning, or? Welcome to the Sati Series. I'll <laughs> say something after the, after the break. Okay, okay. So this is Tony, and um, he's the manager for the first part of the day, and then Robert will come in the afternoon, and he's the manager for the second part. So as Tony said, that um, this is a Sati Center event, even though you know we're at the IMC. It looks like IMC. Everything looks the same as IMC. So here's a little difference. Here's how I'm interpreting the difference between a Sati Center event and an IMC event. Is we're going to talk about the life story of the Buddha, but I'm going to give just a little bit more of where do these stories come from. And we're going to look at like why do we think these stories are the way that they are. So I may say things like, well, this comes out of the Majjhima Nikaya or the Mahavaga, the Vinaya. That may be of interest to you. It may not be of interest to you, too, and that's okay. If that's you, don't really care about uh, all this stuff, that's fine, too. But I'm just going to kind of insert that in there. But one thing that I um, will be talking about is how stories, whether it's the life story of um, the Buddha in this case, but all stories in general, kind of reflect the communities who keep them, the communities who maintain them. Like, why do some stories survive through time and others don't? And why are there sometimes more than one version of a story can we understand um, how one version may be meaningful to some people and maybe another version is meaningful to some other people? So these are some of the themes that we will explore. So rather than trying to get to the truth, what's real versus what's not real or something like that, we're still we're going to look more at like uh, what's the role these stories have? How are they meaningful? How can we imagine they were meaningful to others? How are they meaningful to us? What, um, what value can we imagine they have? And there may be, we can say, this is rubbish. I, it's not valuable for me today. But maybe I can imagine that a few thousand years ago, maybe it was meaningful to them. That's okay, too. We can have that. But I'd like to start with a general discussion and um, have some microphones or maybe I should say that if you can't um, if you can't hear me well, I'll try to speak loud and make sure the microphone's in the right place. Oh no, no, that's a little too loud. Then um, there are hearing assisted devices if you need them, just right on the counter outside of the doorway there. But to make sure that all of us can hear and participate in the conversations we're going to be having, that um, when we have general discussion, we'll use a microphone just to make it so everybody can hear. So I'd like to start with this general question. What is the appeal of biographies? Like e even in contemporary times, today, if you go to the library, there's a whole section on biography, right? The life stories of all kinds of people. What do you think is the appeal of biographies? Um, uh, <clears throat> I was thinking number one was um, in inspiration, you know, like hearing about, I mean, one of my mentors, although somebody that I never met, um, was Richard Feynman, who is a physicist, and I've read, read a couple of biographies of him, and, you know, there's just something kind of inspiring about the intellectual freedom that he uh, embraced. Thank you, Tim. I actually read that too. Surely you must be joking, Dr. Feynman. Yeah, it's a very interesting biography for those of you who are interested in biographies of physicists. <laughs> Anybody else? Uh, here's Wendy. Identifying uh, with the individual, re relating. Yeah, yeah, relating to... Like, oh, that, that person had that experience. I've had that experience. Yeah. And Bill? Um, well, we're, we're all different people, but 
there's similarities amongst us all too. So as we read about um, what other people went through, we get to read about their entire life and see the changes, maybe the growth they went through. Maybe there's something I can learn from this. Uh, maybe there's something about the difficulties that person went through that relate to mine. Sure, sure. Maybe kind of, I don't know, normalize our experience, and maybe we can learn from the things that they learned. Yeah, thank you, Bill. There are some other comments on the appeal of biographies? Right over here. Well, I think just inspiration for our own, like the Buddhist story is inspiring, whether it's true or not for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, it's inspiring. Maybe, uh, dare I say, even a sense of awe or something. I don't know if that's in particular what you meant, but sometimes there's a sense of like, wow. What about... Um, the difference between an autobiography and a biography. What, what do you think are, A, um, some differences? What can we find in an autobiography that we won't find in a biography? Or the other way, what will we find in a biography that we wouldn't find in an autobiography? And B, um, is the appeal for them different for an autobiography or a biography? And so we can get... An autobiography is written by the person who is the subject of the biography, and a biography is written by another person writing about the first person. So an autobiography is more accurate because it has the thoughts and the way things happen from the viewpoint of the person that is the protagonist in the story. Thank you. So you have the idea, can we, I can hear a little bit of an echo. Can we put the volume down just a tiny bit? So does everybody agree that an autobiography is more accurate? You have the microphone, Phil. Um, right now I'm writing, I'm reading um, Walter Isaacson's biography of Henry Kissinger. And um, I think it's probably much more accurate than an autobiography of Kissinger. Um, uh, in, in certain in certain ways, in certain ways, more accurate. Okay, so here we have. Well, maybe in some ways, biographies are more accurate. Um, anybody else want to comment? So, uh, Wendy has the microphone. Or yeah, I was just going to say that um, each one contains a different set of delusions. <laughs> you know, I mean, short of an autobiography by, I don't know, uh, Arhat or something like that, it seems like, you know, the autobiography is seen through all of the delusions that the person has about themselves. A biography, potentially, if there's more than one person involved in the mm, acquiring of perspectives, may be somewhat more accurate I don't know if it's accurate but maybe somewhat less myoptic mm. I liked what you said Jim different delusions right we can imagine that there's material in an autobiography that wouldn't be in a biography and vice versa right it's different uh, filters in which they're viewing things Wendy I think you had your hand up I was um, going to say kind of what Jim said um, about um, that there are just different perspectives of the memories of the individual. Yes. What about the motivation or the function? Why would somebody write an autobiography versus why would somebody write a biography? That is, if we have you know the same person. Like, what, what motivates a person to either write an autobiography or write a biography? Here's Kim. I think Mick has the. Well, there are many motivations for each, of course. But what came to mind first when you said that was that autobiography can be written as a form of healing or um, consolidation or integration for the person writing it. Mm, nice. 
And do you have an idea of motivation for a biography? Well, one common one is um, some of what came up when we talked about it as a sense of inspiration or admiration for the person. Yeah, yeah. Does anybody want to add to that? Well, for the, the biography is sort of who was that person? and trying to make sense of it because story is, I mean, you could just have an infinite number of data points about a particular life, but organizing that into a story and an account that makes sense, that gives meaning. So who was that person is different than, I mean, the motivations are different for, for I would think, writing a biography than an autobiography. Let's see if I understand. So you're saying that part of the reason for writing a biography is just to collect and organize the information. Well, any story, any story just organizes the data of our experience and yeah. makes, makes sense of it. Yeah, yeah. Does anybody else want to add something? Vasa? I think there's the... Not exactly addressing that question, but... I do think that a very good biographer can act as a bridge from the subject to the audience that maybe the actual person wouldn't do as well at. Because the biographer has an outside perspective, then, yeah, I just, I think maybe there's a, a function as a, an intelligent and just to bridge that gap works well. Yeah. I prefer biographies to autobiographies, but I think I'm also a little biased against the type of person who would write about themselves. <laughs> no, I think that you indirectly pointed to a motivation that, um, building on what Kim said, kind of autobiographies may be something that the person is doing for themselves, for their own maybe healing or integration. So they're maybe not, their primary focus is not to connect to the audience. They're maybe to explore something. Whereas maybe a biography, their purpose is to connect with an audience and to share a story. Of course, all of these are true, right? We're, we're using gross generalizations about this. But uh, does anybody else want to add anything about kind of different scenarios? Um, money. People do it for uh, money, depending on uh, the like celebrities. People write biographies because they want it to be on the um, bestseller list. Interesting. Uh, when when you said that, what came to mind is like Steve Jobs, right? That biography, right, went up to it was a New York Times bestseller for a long time. I don't know who the author was, but that's a good point. Does anybody else uh, want to add anything? Here's Jim. Yeah, just uh, adding to what you said, I think there's actually a whole cottage industry of people writing biographies about Steve Jobs. <laughs> you know, I mean, and some of them are like, you know, hatchet jobs, and some are, you know, like, you know, undiluted praise. And so I suspect that. There can also be, when you were talking about the healing or integration or something, that it could be that, at least for some biographies, that there is something that the biographer themselves is working through in the way that they present oh, the material. It, yes, you know, interesting. You know, that some are, you know, like some, like Steve Jobs was like, the second coming of the Buddha. <laughs> second? Well, well, I don't we know. We talk about that. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, others are just like, oh, he was just like a Machiavellian character and that. So I just, the night or two ago, there was something on Democracy Now! Uh, somebody had written a small, not a whole biography, but just a piece about this guy, Tom Cotton, who wrote the letter to Iran from, oh, yes. from Senate. And, you know, so... Part of me was thinking, well, what was the motivation of that particular journalist to write about that particular guy who isn't that well known, um, you know, at this particular time, that there was some mm, agenda there? 
Exactly, right? This is something we're going to um, explore a little bit today, if we dare use this word, agenda. Like, what is the function? What was the role? What is the motivation? So as well as exploring the story of the life of the Buddha, in addition, we're going to explore why. Why was it there? Because in the earliest Buddhist uh, scriptures, I'll use that word, suttas, that's um, Pali for, I'll use the word scriptures, there is no biography of the Buddha. There is no, he was born, he became enlightened, he died. That doesn't exist as a full story. What does exist is that the Buddha talks about himself, he talks about his earlier life in the context of a greater teaching. That is, he wants to make a point about something, so he shares a story about his life as if to say, look, I know what I'm talking about because I experienced this um, earlier. So what has... um, So we can deduce from this something about the uh, role of biography and autobiography is that at the time of the Buddha, 2,600 years ago approximately, the actual life story beginning, middle, and end, that itself was not of primary importance. If it were of primary importance, that would have been um, maintained or captured and maintained in the suttas, in the earliest strata of the Buddhist scriptures. Instead, they're just used to um, make a point. Of course, there are biographies that are written, written later, and we'll um, discuss them and we'll talk a little bit about um, what they contain versus what's in the earliest, uh, earlier strata. And we'll talk about how are the things that are later com- different than what's earlier. What can we learn about those communities, about what was important to them by what was happened later? And then we'll talk about what does it mean to us living in 21st century California? You know, what what does it mean for us? As well as what does it mean that Westerners who have kind of adopted this um, tradition from the Asia, what stories do we know? What ones have we been telling versus perhaps what they are thinking about there in Asia? What kind of uh, ones have we embraced and we tell about the Buddha? as opposed to maybe some other parts of the story. So there'll be a number of different ways in which we'll look at this, including the, um, the stories themselves. So here's a question. Yeah, was the, the lack of biography unique to those suttas at that time, or just in, in that whole era, people just weren't concerned with biographies in that kind of... Um, yes, thank you for asking. That's literature a good, writing. That's or, a, a good yeah. question. So at the time of the Buddha, 2,600 years ago, um, there was the dominant religion, which was Brahmanism. We can think of it as a type of proto-Hinduism. It's not exactly Hinduism, but it has the foundation of that. And they were even less interested in uh, biographies as well. So it's not unique uh, to Buddhism, but that was kind of the cultural milieu of the time. Makes sense, right, that um, often... To make a giant generalization, right? And there will be, it's probably, there are so many exceptions to this, but a giant generalization is that in Asia there's a little more emphasis on collectivism. You know, we are a community and we do things as a community, versus here in the West there's a little more emphasis on individualism. I'm going to do this, I'm going to make this happen. So we can, it's natural. But also I'll say, even here in the West, that the idea of, um, of course, they've been writing biographies, but before they were writing biographies, they were writing hagiographies. You may ask, what is that? What's a hagiography? That is a life story where the subject becomes less and less human and more and more godlike. And this is well um, known in the Christian tradition for all the saints, right? There's a lot of hagiographies. We use this word hagiographies about the saints, assuming that parts of what's um, described in there didn't actually occur. And so this we see happening as well with Buddhism. So this is kind of like a scholar's perspective, you know, on the outside calling it a hagiography. 
I want to bow to, there are individuals and there are whole communities who would look at what's written down and say, this is the truth. It doesn't matter that it defies our contemporary idea of physics or, I don't know, what human beings can do. There definitely are people who think it's all the truth, and I want to uh, recognize that. But here, um, I'm going to try to point out some of, well, you'll recognize those things that we share that don't seem like our normal occurrences that you and I could do. But I'll say that um, in the earliest strata of the Buddhist scriptures, that they, we, we've uh, autobiography, biography, and what some scholars will call hagiography. We see all three of them. And they're like little passages um, sprinkled throughout in, you know, as I said earlier, in the context of some greater teaching. And maybe I'll add one um, other thing about this topic, that uh, in the West, biographies weren't always what we think of them today. Right? That we can, we, I don't think we should um, underestimate the impact of somebody like Freud, who said, well, you know, our behavior is due to our unconscious, and that we may do things because we're compelled by some reason. Earlier, there wasn't that understanding, and maybe there wasn't that uh, interest. So earlier, like in the 1700s, 1800s, biographies were mostly like the hero's journey. You know, he went here and fought this army and, you know, had a victory and then came home without any really, you know, interest in introspection, why he did that and what his relationship with his mother was like or father, you know, these types of things. So that's a contemporary um, view that we have, which is perfectly valid. But I want us to be aware that that's a contemporary idea because we're going to be, we're located here in the 21st century in California, of course, and we're going to be looking back at things that are happened thousands of years ago. I just want us to keep that in mind that we're, um, that they may have different ideas back then thousands of years ago. And so the way that we interpret them will, is our, appropriate and okay, but it may not be the same way that they interpreted them then. Jim. Yeah. Um, when you were talking about the Brahmanism and Hinduism and the collectivism versus individualism, um, I started, so my mind went off <laughs> on a tangent, maybe, but that my understanding is that at that time there's also more of a sense of rebirth is that right? In Brahmanism and yes. Hinduism? Yes. So the idea that writing about what happened from when a particular person was born until they died wouldn't be the whole story, right? Yes. And so then I started to think, well, so when did the Jataka tales about the Buddha's earlier lives, when did that surface? And is that going to be part of this discussion or is that just sort of like a different... No, this is a good question. Um, so in the outline that I have in my mind right now, we weren't going to dive into the Jataka tales. But I'm happy to do this. I actually know quite... Uh, I know uh, I'm about to give a lecture on the Jataka tales on Monday. So I kind of know a little bit about this stuff. Um, the stories, for those of you who don't know... There was a whole collection of stories about the Buddha's past lives when he was sometimes an animal or sometimes a man, never a woman. Um, and he is a, uh, the hero of the story of whatever happened in the previous lives. Giant collection, 550 of them officially. Um, that arrived, the stories um, got collected um, around 800 years after the time of the Buddha. So that's quite some time afterwards. It's uh, in the commentaries, for those of you who are familiar with what the idea of the commentaries are. And um, maybe I'll leave it at that, because here in the West, this idea of rebirth, I think many of us still aren't quite sure about this, and we're a little bit more interested in the life story of this individual. But if you want to talk more about it or something like that, I'm happy to do that. Yes, Kim. 
uh, one point that I hope you might elaborate on, because you, you just said that in these tales of the Buddha, we'll hear autobiography, biography, and hagiography. Is that right? Yeah. I would question um, saying autobiography. I mean, yes, there's this famous passage where he talks about his two earlier teachers and so forth, but I don't think there was ever an understanding that that came that wasn't published by the Buddha. He didn't write the suttas. We understand that. So I would say that everything could be understood as biography. Why, why do you say autobiography is there? Great. Thank you, Kim. I will say autobi- it's portrayed as autobiography, despite its autobiography, but Kim brings up a very good point. So maybe I'll back up a little bit, and what do we know about these scriptures? So at the time of the Buddha, there was... Um, he taught a lot, right? And his teachings were the story that we have, that are, right, this is a story that uh, the tradition holds, was that um, for most of them, Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, um, was there present for the stories, and he remembered them. This isn't unusual to remember everything. At this time, this is what there wasn't, you know, their lives were so completely different than ours, right? There was no radio or TV or internet or books or anything like this. And I'll say uh, the Brahmins at that time, the, I talked about uh, Brahmanism, their religious life uh, was dependent on them memorizing the correct mantras. Absolutely. That was a big part of their religious uh, that's how religion, for religion with them was a lot of recitation. So to memorize was the norm. And for people who were well supposed to do that. So Ananda memorized everything that the Buddha said. This is the story that we have. And then after the Buddha's death, there was a gathering of all the monks, not all of them, the arhats, some of them, a collection of arhats, and Ananda retold the stories. And these individuals memorized them. So now there's a collection of people who know, who know these. And they hold them um, they're an oral tradition for a few hundred years. Where a person would tell to the next person to the next person, right? So it's not written down. At that time, writing did exist, but it was felt like, oh, that's for like uh, commerce. It's not some religious life was felt to be too important to uh, write down. A few hundred years later, they do get written down, but not in ancient India, where the Buddha lived, in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is an island off the southern tip of India. Now, there's, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, like what happened in this oral tradition between uh, when Ananda uh, shares them at this, the first council, which is after the life of the Buddha, and when they get written down. We're, we're going to explore a little bit of that. And then maybe here I'll also introduce, then a few hundred years later, now we're 800 years after the time of the Buddha, and to kind of help put that in perspective, if we assume that a generation is like 25 years, so every 100 years there's four generations, 800 years, 32 generations of people. That's a long time. That's a long... You know. The commentaries get written down. And so the commentaries are... They're looking back at the suttas, the scriptures, and including definitions and including backstory. So they will, the commentaries will take a sentence that's exactly in the scriptures, in the commentary, and say, it says this in the scriptures, and here's what it means. And then it'll be like be a few paragraphs. And then this sentence, and here's what it means. Right? So the commentaries are voluminous, and they're about 800 years afterwards. So Kim is absolutely right. We're using this, I'm using this word autobiography because the way that the, um, the scriptures, the suttas are held is they make a distinction between, they always identify, not always, mostly they identify who the speaker is. So those things that are put in the mouth of the Buddha, 
versus those things that are put in the mouth of one of his students or even a narrator. Thank you, Kim. Okay, so that's a lot of talk about biography, autobiography. Let's talk about the Buddha, right? So I would like to start with just a, um, have a sketch, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. Let's get into um, a group of four and just briefly discuss for yourself, like, what does the life of the Buddha mean to you? Like, why, why does it matter? What is it really important? Is it, are you just curious? Is there something that you really um, are bothered about the story, that you're, the, the version of the story that you know now? Or is there, um, yeah, what, what, what does it mean for you? And the way that we'll do this is we'll get in groups of four, and that, um, one person, just say something simple. Just be simple. Um, I'm curious. And the second person can say something. And the third person, and the fourth person. And then it comes back around to the first person. And maybe what other people have said brings a new idea to your mind. And then you can share that. So we're not going to do a lot of cross-talk or... Ad, or uh, advising one another, oh, you shouldn't think that, that's silly, right? We're not going to do any of that. It's just a way to kind of share and explore. Like, what, why does it matter? What role does it have in our lives if we're practitioners, if we're scholars, if we're just curious? So why don't we do that? Why don't we just kind of break up in a group? And this won't be long. We're not going to spend, you know, a long time doing this. But um, break up into groups of four, and we'll talk about what does the life story of the Buddha mean to you? Why, why is it meaningful? And then we can put it on pause. Yeah. So if we could come back to the to the group here. That's a good sign that you guys are talking. You know, Beverly, I know you from the class I remember, I couldn't remember your name, but uh, Beverly. Okay. Thank you. Okay, do, do you want to unpause? Oh, you're already we're already unpaused. Okay, we're so so, would anybody like to share what um, that was like? Did you learn something new or have a new idea? Or did it become clear to you what's the most important? Or is there anything that you're willing to share with the larger group of? Why is the story of the life, why is the life story of the Buddha meaningful? Or Bill, would you like to? Here's a microphone. I'll to repeat what I said in our group. Uh, I'm interested in it because I've always loved history. Mm-hmm. It's like the antecedents of whatever I'm interested in is also interesting to me. But uh, regarding the life story of the Buddha, uh, I guess that's not very important to me. It was written down so many years later, and then we don't even know if what was written down 400 years after the Buddha's lifetime is the same as the Pali Canon we have now? Probably not. Um, what's important are the teachings because we can try them out and they work wonderfully. It's like a complete system. So uh, that's what's important to me. Mm. Thank you, Bill. But I, st- I do love history. <laughs> okay, so interesting because history is just interesting, but uh, you're a little bit less interested to finding out the truth. Did he really actually say this or exist? If we could find out the truth, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Jim. Yeah, I like this exercise a lot. And one thing that came to me is that it was really 
what intrigues me about the Buddha is the, the sense of possibility that he represents, like what's possible with this human life. Um, you know, I've had, being in research, I've had any number of mentors and things like that. And like I'd always look at them and they go, well, you know, they're pretty good in this, you know, scientifically they're pretty good, but like as a human being, you know, it's like, <laughs> I'm not, you know, there's other things that I'm not getting from them and everything else. But so um, I, for me, it was um, a sense of possibility. And actually, I don't know, for some reason, as, as I was listening to Bill, I was thinking about as a kid, I used to watch the Hardy Boys and the Mickey Mouse Club. And there was a lot about treasure maps. Oh. You know, like people were always like, is this treasure map true? Is this going to lead to the treasure? And I guess in a certain way, the Buddha has got a treasure map. And do I believe it? Or is it something I really just have to follow to f and dig that hole in the ground and see if that uh, chest is there? Oh, that's great, Bill. Oh, Bill, Jim. I'm sorry, that's, I hadn't thought of this kind of as a treasure map. So the path of practice that he put forward as a kind of treasure map? Interesting. This, what came to my mind when you said that is um, trying to pull together the little bits of the Buddha's life story and where are they in the Buddhist tradition and which community holds which version, which story. For me, as kind of like a scholar looking into this, it feels like a treasure hunt trying to find these little gems or these little nuggets of um, interesting, uh, I don't know, tidbits or things that we could then uh, piece together. So there is definitely a sense of maybe discovery uh, for, for me looking at this and maybe you as a practitioner also. We talked about a lot of different things, um, but I'll just highlight a couple. Uh, one was uh, the question of how the stories of the details of the Buddhist life are consistent or resonant or somehow represent the teachings that he also offers. And it seems that those should be consistent. And so um, it's interesting to look at how certain parts of his life or the way um, yeah, the way it's described are consistent with what he teaches. So, for example, we brought up the, the middle way of this idea that there was an earlier life of sensual pleasure and then a time of asceticism and then finding somewhere in the middle, that seems to embody what he offers as a middle way teaching for the mind also. And so there might be some resonance there. Mm. And then uh, another thing that, come up, that came up was how different stories, um, and you said this earlier, different stories or different aspects might be meaningful to people because of the culture that, that they're in. So we brought up, for example, the story, which is we know is not in the suttas, of the uh, going out, the heavenly messengers, and going out of the walls to encounter sickness, old age, and death, and how that may be particularly meaningful for us as Westerners because our society is particularly sanitized in that mm. way. We don't see those things, and so that part of the story then is interesting to us in a way that it might not be for somebody else. Mm. Thank you, Kim. Nice. So kind of like the, his life story is an exemplar of the teaching, as well as recognizing that, oh, as Westerners, we've held on to this little piece that all of us know, we'll talk about this later, that, but actually turns out not to be in the earliest strata of the teachings. This isn't, this isn't an issue that came up in our group that I recall. Um, and I didn't, and I didn't think of it myself, obviously. Uh, community, the whole, the whole uh, matter of community and how that has played a role. You, you alluded. I think that's what put me onto it. You alluded to the various, the various schools and so on. And all of this, all of the Buddha's teachings, obviously, by the time we heard of any of it, certainly had the impact of various communities and arguments and blah blah blah. So that whole aspect of things uh, is. I don't think one can discuss the life of the Buddha without that aspect, although I don't know it can be part of this today. We've got a day to talk about it. But community, is a, community life is a big part of this kind of history. 
Thank you, Mick. So I, I'm not sure that, I want to make sure that I understand. So you're like um, re a recognition that certain communities were, had different versions of the story because it was meaningful for them. Is that right? And then to, it's interesting, like who are those communities? Yeah, and since we don't have a primary actor, writer here, yeah. it, this, none of this got out of the gates <laughs> without uh, a lot of impact from a lot of uh, different sources. Yes. You know, something that um, occurred to me the other day when I was thinking about this very thing is that we have a modern, very modern equivalent of this that perhaps many of you in this room have experience with. That is Wikipedia, right? We have kind of like a version that gets put up there, but other people can modify. Maybe they just modify a little piece because that makes sense to them, and maybe somebody else adds another piece, and, and then maybe, some, you know, it gets added and bigger and deleted and something like this. So, right, we're still, you know, this community today, we do these same things in electronic format out there in the cloud. But, of course, a giant, giant difference between Wikipedia and the stories of the Buddha is that Wikipedia has a little page, right, that keeps track of who made which change on which day. And, of course, we don't know that. We don't know exactly when certain changes were made or, indeed, if any changes were made. And there are some communities... Um, primarily in Asia right now, who will say no changes were made. This is how it is. This is how it started. And if there's inconsistencies, then we just have to deal with it. You know, so I just kind of want to emphasize that there's a whole range of way of um, holding this. But And so um, to build on what you're saying, Mick, part of um, studying the life story of the Buddha is a little bit about studying the communities too. That's the only thing we have as we can imagine what was meaningful for different people. And I was just thinking political analysis would be interesting to apply to all this. I'm sure there, there were probably groups with opinions that were just suppressed. There were others that had gained, in some ways, certain powers, and their voice got more amplified in the tradition of hundreds of years. Absolutely. So maybe I'll just build on this. So the, um, we have the Pali Canon. Those of you who don't know it, those are that's like the word canon suggests that it's a closed uh, collection of scriptures. Pali is the language that it was uh, written down in, and that canon, the Pali canon, is um, held to be the scriptures by Theravada Buddhism. But uh, Theravada Buddhism wasn't the only Buddhism, early Buddhism. It just happens to be the only one that maintained its canon. And so now, in uh, the West, 2,600 years later, we think of early Buddhism, we look at this. But there are other Buddhist schools, and we're going to look at some of their teachings, uh, their versions of the story, that were happening at the same time as Theravada. And they only, uh, what's preserved, are just little tidbits of their canon. They don't have a complete one. They had one at, a t at one time, but it's no longer preserved. So we can look at these other little tidbits from these other schools and compare it to what we have, and we can, it kind of highlights um, what the Theravadins chose to put or what to uh, include in their canon. Maybe I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But um, the tradition holds, we don't know exactly, that in fact, right after the time of the Buddha, within a few hundred years, there had been a some schisms. Eventually, there were 18 different schools. Theravada was kind of one of the later ones. It, and so they, you know, wasn't the only version of early Buddhism. There were they... Um, they differed, some of them, on their kind of philosophical ideas of how karma works, for example, or something like that. So when Mick is saying about political things, right, kind of we just know from history that uh, the victors get to kind of tell the story. So Theravada, for whatever reason, they're the ones that um, their canon and their practitioners have kind of survived to this time. So... Their version of Buddhism is what is preserved. 
But um, scholarship in the last 20 years, probably, there's been a, a real interest in what have these other uh, schools preserved and what have their teachings been. And it's only been in the last 20 years because um, it's, it's difficult to find individuals that know all these ancient languages and can compare things like, oh, these people know this, these people are saying this, and people are saying that. So this is an area of scholarship. Does anybody uh, want to say anything else about uh, the meaning of the life of the Buddha? The life story? Wendy? Um, I hope I can articulate this. Um, Sometimes, I, I have no doubt in the practice, but there's been times that when I sit and practice that um, something would come up and I have doubt and I then I would ask the teacher, um, well, um, like I would have like, chronic pain and then the teacher would say well the buddha had chronic pain and i hear that a lot like the buddha had this the buddha experienced that it's like wow he just had such a he experienced everything and um he's like a superhero (laughs) and so i just kind of want to um know more about um how did he experience so much that he was able to um uh uh give us this this blueprint uh for the um um with all these lists and um so i'm i'm just very curious about that mm. great and we'll be talking about this a few things both the the very human uh, aspects of the Buddha, and we'll also be talking about uh, some of the supernormal, well, I'll use that word, superhuman, supernormal things, as well as um, this idea of lists very systematic for noble truths, eightfold path, four right efforts, five faculties, seven factors of awakening, right? There's all these lists, as well as narrative, the stories. And I would like to say that um, we appreciate both, and there's room for both, and there's a relationship for both, the systematic lists and the narrative, the stories. Sometimes the lists are embedded in the stories, and we're going to look at that today. And, but sometimes the um, right, Buddhism would be very different if we just gave somebody a list. Okay, here's... Uh, a list of lists. Here's uh, some factors of awakening, four foundations of mindfulness. Go. <laughs> Check back in a couple of years. Right? It would be different, right, if we didn't have these stories. So that's something um, that Tony reminded me at the break. He was just sharing with me that he's reading a book called Neuroscience of Story. Wired for Story. Oh, Wired for Story. Yeah, so I would say this is a new thing that's happening in Buddhist scholarship also, is a real appreciation for storytelling, what role it has in our lives, um, and, and what role it has in religious teaching. Some people will say that stories happen first, and then the systemization, let's organize these stories and turn it into lists. Some people will say, oh, the lists started first and then the stories were created around them. I don't think we need to concern ourselves with what came first, but just that there are these kind of two different ways of teaching, two different ways of uh, remembering things. So I would like to tell a story now. But maybe I'll preface this with them, quite a few times we've mentioned today about communities that hold stories and what holds what they think is important and um, meaningful. 
So I'll say that when I was putting together what we're going to talk about today, I was so aware of how I had to make some choices. Which stories are we going to talk about? Which versions of the stories are we going to talk about? So I have my own bias, right? I have my own uh, viewpoint. Because you could come to a place and hear about the life story of the Buddha that was taught by somebody who was ordained in Sri Lanka from 10 years old and is now 60 years old, has spent 50 years as a monk practicing in a Buddhist country, you'd get a different version, I'm guessing, than me. I'm quite socialized here in the West. I should tell you also that I was trained as a scientist. I was an atheist for a big part of my life, then had some big shift and Buddhism became very, very important for me. And I became a serious practitioner, did a lot of meditation, and I've also done some scholarship. I have a master's degree in Buddhist studies. So that's kind of like my story, and I feel like I want to put that out there a little bit so that you can be aware of, you know, the point of view that I'm coming from. Maybe I should add also that I love stories. And for me, they're very meaningful and impactful, especially... um, maybe is a little bit of a counterbalance of being a scientist for so many years. Now it's fun to just kind of get lost in stories, and I really appreciate they speak to me in a nice way. Okay. I'm going to tell a story about the Buddha that we find in the earliest strata of the suttas. And then we'll talk about it afterwards. Probably most of you know the basics of the story. So there was this man, his name was Gotama. That was his, from the Shakya clan, his name, his family name was Gotama. He was known as Gotama. I'm using that pronunciation that's closer to the Pali. Some people say Gotama, but the Pali is Gotama. And he was brought up in a wealthy family and was really pampered when he was young. So much so that um, his father built for him three different palaces, one for the rainy season, one for the winter, and one for the summer. And in these palaces, there were beautiful flowers, these lily ponds, and, and he had everything that he needed. But he became disenchanted. He became um, disenchanted. He realized, I have everything I need, I feel happy, safe, and secure, but it's not enough. It doesn't feel quite right. It feels like there should be something more. Probably many of us can relate to that. Even though we may have a lot, we often feel like there should be more. So at this time, as I said, there was Brahmins who were the dominant religious tradition, and they were their um, priests who did a lot of sacrifices and chanting of mantras. But there was also a thriving alternative religious community. And we can think of them, as I think of them, as kind of like the hippies or the dropouts, the people who said, I don't, this Brahmanism, this uh, dominant religious culture doesn't speak to me. Instead, I'm going to go forth as a mendicant, as a renunciant, as a monk. And I'm going to have an alms bowl and um, people will um, donate meals to me. But otherwise, I'm going to drop out of society, not um, participate in the economic and social um, conventions of the time. That was a thriving part of ancient India. Maybe I'll just say as an, an aside, some of these dropouts, wanderers, mendicants, renunciants, some of them were philosophers and would give talks of big on philosophy. Some of them um, were ascetics doing self-mortification practices. So there's kind of two different types. But they were all opposed to the dominant religion, Brahmanism of that time, which was focused on um, sacrifices and um, mantras, recitation. So Gotama felt dissatisfied with his life, so he said, I'm going to go forth. I'm going to become a mendicant. This householder's life is crowded and dusty. Life gone forth is wide open. 
It's not easy living in a household to lead a holy life that's perfect and pure. Suppose I shave off my hair and beard, put on the saffron robe, and go forth from the householder's life into homelessness. So he does so. He goes forth, cuts off his hair, starts wearing the clothes of a renunciant, and first he goes to some meditation masters. First he goes to Alara Kalama, who teaches him advanced meditation states. Today we would say like up to the seventh jhana, if that means anything to you. It's a very concentrated state um, that's definitely out of your ordinary um, experience. And Gotama um, is able to have some real expertise or gain some real, um, he becomes an adept at this, but it's still not enough. It doesn't still feel quite right. Maybe some of us can relate to this too. We learn something, but it doesn't feel quite right. So he goes to another meditation teacher, Ramaputta. And he learns even higher meditation techniques or abilities, still very non-ordinary experiences. But he realizes, like, after meditation, it's still his life is the same. So he feels like this isn't, um, this isn't working. This isn't the way to freedom. So he tries a third thing. He goes to ascetic practices, some self-mortification. Some of it is gruesome. There is a lot of um, gory details about this. But one that is most famous is that um, he said it's not to eat or to really limit um, the amount of food that he thought. Suppose I take very little food say a handful each time whether it is bean soup or lentil soup or pea soup and I did so and as I did so my body reached a state of extreme emaciation my limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo because of eating so little my backside became like a camel's hoof the projections on my spine stood forth like corded beads my ribs jutted out as gaunt as the rafters of an old barn. The gleam of my eyes sunk far down in their sockets, and my scalp shriveled and withered. This is extreme uh, emaciation. And he thinks that no one can surpass him in the degree of his asceticism. Nobody does more self-mortification. And he has this thought, whenever a monk or a Brahmin as whatever a monk or Brahmin has felt in the past or will feel in the future or feels now, painful, racking, piercing feelings due to striving, it can equal what I have done but not exceed it. By this grueling penance, I have attained to no distinction higher than the human state. So even though he has done this extreme asceticism, he realizes that he's still has the same um, kind of dissatisfaction with the way things are, with aging and old day uh, sickness. And he wonders, might there be another way to enlightenment? I've tried these three different things. Is there a fourth? And at that time, he has a memory of when he was a young boy sitting underneath the rose apple tree when his father was um, presiding over a plowing festival. I thought of a time when my Sakyan father was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome things. I entered upon and abided in the first jhana. So again, this is the first jhana. It's a meditative state. It has a lot of ease, a lot of uh, sense of well-being, a lot of pleasure. And he thought, might this be the way to enlightenment? And then following up on that memory came the recognition that indeed this was the way to enlightenment. So instead of these extreme meditation or extreme um, asceticism was this way the first jhana that had a lot of sense of ease and pleasure. Why am I afraid of such pleasure, he wondered. It is pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual desires or unwholesome things, I am not afraid of such pleasure, for I am not afraid of such pleasure. But 
it is not possible to attain this with a body so excessively emaciated. Suppose I ate some solid food. So he does. He has the opportunity to eat some solid food. He takes a little bit of food. But at that time, there were five companions that were with him, that were practicing self-mortification with him. And when they saw that he was eating, (laughs) they thought, oh, this Gotama person, he has given up. As soon as I ate the food, the five bhikkhus were disgusted and left me, thinking, that monk Gotama has become self-indulgent. He has given up the struggle. He has reverted to luxury. But not deterred by that, Gotama decides that he's going to try for awakening now that he feels like he knows the way. And he sits under the tree, with his back towards the tree, and meditates, making the vow that he's not going to move until he does achieve awakening. And he does. He becomes awakened. And we'll talk about the specifics of that later. But he doesn't want to teach afterwards. After he has this amazing awakening experience, he feels like, well, now what? He, sits, he continues to sit under the tree, kind of the bliss of uh, awakening. And he utters these words. Enough with teaching the Dharma that even I found hard to reach, for it will be perceived by those, it will not be perceived by those that live in lust, and hate those died in lust wrapped in darkness will never discern this abstruse dharma which goes against the worldly stream subtle, deep, and difficult to see then we have Brahma who is for the Brahmins this, um, the, the dominant religious tradition and for them Brahma is the highest god they have a pantheon of gods Uh, Brahma is the highest. Brahma comes down and says to the Buddha, Arise, victorious hero, debtless one, and wander in the world. Let the blessed one teach the Dharma. There will be those who will understand. There's a few more stanzas. Then the Buddha says, And I listen to the Brahma's pleading, and out of compassion for beings, I surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha and saw that there were those with little dust in their eyes. And hence begins the Buddha's teaching career and all and Buddhism starts to begin, right, with these teachings. So this story that I told in the beginning is just a person, a man, who has a lot of wealth, a lot of uh, things that he needs in his life, feels like not quite enough, and he decides to go forth. He tries a number of different practices, and then finds one that works. Sits under a tree, and becomes awakened. And then after that, in come deities, we have a Brahma who asks him to teach. The, I'm sorry, I should say, we can now call him the Buddha because he's awakened before he was Gotama. Buddha means the awakened one. Or And um, Brahma asks, the Buddha is hesitant to teach and Brahma asks him to. And the Buddha says, well, out of compassion for others, I will teach. So I left out of a lot of parts here, right? <laughs> that some of you are familiar with. And that's because those parts that we're familiar with aren't in the early strata of the uh, Pali canon. And later we'll talk about why. I can see, Beverly, that you're really (laughs) troubled by this. (laughs) So do you you want to say something? Well, yeah, just this has always been a glaring thing. I think you know you juxtapose two stories. I've never heard anyone comment on this. So there's the palace story, and then there's the phrase. And we know that that story doesn't appear in the Mahimanakaya. And then the great palaces and everything he needs. And then he says, 
the household life is crowded and dusty. <laughs> and, and this is just a big contradiction. I mean, it's a, someone tired of their not very nice life going out into the open in search of adventure. And these, they don't match, right? <laughs> the story of the, the household life being crowded and dusty and that he, he had three palaces and beautiful flowers and a perfect environment, everything that he needed. Okay, great. So here's some inconsistency. But also, I can imagine that, you know, in ancient India, nothing is paved, so it's definitely dusty. And that he wasn't alone. I can imagine that. He feels like in order to, this is my imagination, I don't know this, that in order to um, practice or find something different, that he needs to do something different. That's the way that I'm holding it. But now what I would like to encourage you to do, so I, the first part of that story is very kind of normal, humanistic. And the second part is that we have um, some deity center. Maybe we'll discuss this. I'm looking at the time. Um, maybe it's time for a break. And then we'll discuss <laughs> this when we come back. <laughs> the the um, details of what of this version of this story and what um, what we can learn about it and talk about it or something like this. So why don't we take a break for um, twenty minutes? So it's ten thirty-five. So at ten fifty-five, um, let's come back and we'll talk more about this story. Thank you. <laughs> 